Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of HashiCast. We have Xander and Nicole, two of our newest developer advocates at HashiCorp on the show today. Before we jump into our regular segment, I'd love to learn more about our HashiCorp user groups, aka the hugs from around the world. I'm going to check in with Katie Reese, our community manager. Thank you for being here today, Trev. Cool. Yeah, it's really great to, to be on the podcast. Yeah, happy to have you on our HashiCast. This is our first hug segment. Um, do you want to tell me a little bit about what you do at Open Credo? So my name is Trent Rosenbaum. Um, I'm a senior consultant with Open Credo. And Open Credo is like a hands-on development consultancy specializing in kind of cloud-native data engineering and DevOps practices. Nice. And how did you begin organizing this meetup? Because I know it was previously organized by your colleague, Cameron, what that transition was like, and if you're enjoying it, and also if Cameron shared any best practices. Yeah, showed me how he was collecting interest and, you know, what to think about in terms of the event on the date. Started to transition out of the communication. So I kind of shadowed him for the last event, really. What would Cameron tell you is best practice for finding a venue and for getting people there? It's really kind of all just starting with kind of just simply asking community. The London chapter sending a lot of notes out to the community. Um, those come across my inbox. Has that been really important to you to leaning into resources? Yeah, I think I think so. It's, you know, definitely trying to communicate with the wider community is kind of my main priority. And that can either be to try and locate a venue or actually try to really gauge the speaker's interest. The first way that we engage a speaker's interest is actually just having a call to action to fill out a form if you're interested. So it kind of gives us a summary of your talk and everything. So the next phase of that will be to refine that form. And then hopefully we'll also have uh, another one where people can just register that their um, their particular company or venue is interested. How do you plan to keep the momentum of the London Hug as a new organizer? Because it is our largest chapter with 2,500 members. You say the numbers like that, you know, just under 2,500. It feels like I'm um, creating a conference every month. It isn't like that because of the size of the venues. More recently, over this last month, I've seen a lot of interest um, and, and first-time first-time users of Meetup registering for the group. So there's been quite a little bit of a spike in interest there. For these first two events that I'm involved with right now, in the end of 2019, it's about just establishing whether you know we've got a, a, a regular flow of of events that people can count on and look forward to. So that's my immediate priority is just establishing that kind of trust and communication with with the community next year uh we'll probably be where we're just trying out a few different things so in terms of like the talks i'd like to encourage people to do slightly small some smaller talks would you host lightning talks we'd like to host lightning talks just because i think that might suit a new type of speaker you don't have to generate a, a half an hour 40 minutes to just show that you you've got a good idea or you've tried something different or you've combined maybe some of the different tools um, under the hashicorp toolset um, so that that's one thing i'm kind of just uh, thinking about what you know how would that look like on the night 
Um, so I'm just thinking about that for next year, really. Um, and then I'm just trying to think about um, how to kind of align the or meetups with kind of wider HashiCorp style communication as well. Um, so I'd like like that to happen. You know, we've got the series of different events. And even this year, you know, there was stuff like the Hashi Days. Um, and there was that, I think it was the 24-hour um, event. Hashi Talks. Hashi Talks, that is it, yes. That, that um, I remember being at the event for that and we had some speakers, some from Open Credo and others from different you know, parts of the community. And I thought that that was a really great format. Yeah, the London Hug, actually, you all hosted the in-person Hashi Talks, which was then live streamed into the online event. It was really great because, you know, there was a good audience. There were some live talks that were being streamed and then, you know, the other other events coming in, um, content coming in. So it was a really great format. So I'd like those types of things to kind of be expected sometimes. You know, it, obviously it depends on how, how things change over the year. But so um, I think trying to align that type of content with the group would, would help with, with the actual live meetups themselves. Well, you'll have an opportunity to at least do that part again because we're hosting Hashi Talks Thursday, February 20th. Brilliant. Trent, can you tell me a little bit about how your career has been impacted by organizing the London Hug chapter? Yeah, so, you know, it's quite a departure from what I don't normally do and what I have been doing in my career. Um, But really, you know, it it gets me engaged with a lot of people in in the London tech scene, really. And and then it allows me to just do another part, which I think is really kind of crucial in, in kind of the software development industry. It's like it gives me an opportunity to try and introduce others, other developers to each, you know, within the community. You know, um, I might hear one conversation on one side of the, the meetup and then, uh, you know, I might be able to um, link them over to someone else who's talking about roughly the same sort of topic. So so those things, it's really just more of the cultural side of things that it's really enhancing for me. Nice. I personally, through the New York City hug, it's been really nice for me to meet people in my industry that live in New York. I've really, that's the biggest value I find is just the people. You know, when you think about how many people you actually meet or, or projects you actually be on in your career, you know, these sorts of events really just, just kind of spice things up and get people really chatting and talking and interacting. So, Trent, can I look forward to seeing you at HashiConf EU? Oh, yeah, definitely. I really hope to be there. It's, uh, it's always good to see the keynotes, you know, being broadcast, but I'd like to be there in person, definitely. Good. Well, I hope to see you early June in Amsterdam. Oh, right. Well, I thank you again for being here, Trent. On that note, let's pass it back to Rosemary so we can hear from she, Xander, and Nicole. Thanks, Katie. As I mentioned before, we have Nicole and Xander on the show. We'll get some introductions and chat about their experience with Kubernetes and HashiCorp tools. Let's start with Xander. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. So I'm Xander. Uh, just started at HashiCorp. What, this is probably week seven or eight at this point. Um, and it's my first developer advocate job, which I'm, I'm super excited about. I, I come from more of an operational and software background. So I've, I've done a lot of like SRE type stuff. Um, but um, this is my, my first chance to really be involved in more of a community role, which I'm, I'm really excited about. Um, I did, like I said, SRE type roles before this. Um, most recently, I came from Microsoft, where I worked on the Azure Kubernetes Service SRE team directly with Nicole, actually. So I'm super excited to be working with her again. It's it's really fantastic. Um, 
And before Microsoft, I, I did a lot of retail tech stuff. So Starbucks, Target, um, always in kind of that DevOpsy SRE type role. Cool. And since you and Nicole have history, Nicole, tell us a little bit about what you did before HashiCorp uh, and what inspired you to go into developer relations. Yeah. So I'm joining, this is my second week, actually. And I'm also coming from Microsoft. Uh, where I was on the SRE team for the Azure Kubernetes service. And for me, I'm really excited to be joining as a developer advocate because it allows me to actually work with the community. And one of my things in my background is I actually have a background in education. And so being able to actually use that with tech is something I'm really excited about. That's so cool. So both of you, what has the role of developer advocate helped you with in your time at Microsoft or even in some of the jobs that you might have had before? I'll go first. Um, so for me, it's been helpful being able to see examples of how other people make use of the tools that they are responsible for advocating for. And so when you're able to actually see demos put on by other advocates or things like conference talks where they actually work with customers and show use cases and things along those lines. I would definitely echo what Nicole said. I think having somebody who has that engineering background and perspective putting demo content together has been really helpful when I'm trying to ramp up on new technology or tools. I know a lot of the the intro content that I've I've consumed in that process was put out by developer advocates at other companies. Um, and then from the internal perspective, I think um, having somebody so you know working as an SRE inside one of these companies, we don't always get a lot of time to interface with customers, and so having somebody who is out in the community, being able to interface with customers and then having them bring some of that perspective back in is something that I've also found super helpful. I think something that a developer advocate has not been able to articulate for me is how do you pronounce the following? K-U-B-E-C-T-L. Cube cuddle. This is like the holy war within the Kubernetes community. I mean, <laughs> it's, I don't know. Everyone has their uh, their own, I guess. I didn't. I always said cube control until I um, I worked at Starbucks, and one of the other engineers I worked with said cube cube cuddle, and I had never heard that before. Um, but I have stuck to it since because I think of all of the pronunciation options, it is the cutest, and therefore I I tend to tend to stick to it. As Xander said, it's a very religious thing, and I don't generally tell people they're wrong, but you're wrong, Xander. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly enough, in an older release of Kubernetes in the release notes, it actually shows you how to pronounce it as a canonical rule and it's cube control. And someone added the, I think it was the creator of the tool actually added that into the release notes in like 1.6. Wow. I need to reread release notes more often. I feel like this is really important information that would settle a lot of arguments. I'm also team GIF rather than JIF, though, so I think I'm probably just wrong across the board. Um, but I, you know, I'm willing to live with that. I would say JIF, I think, but I think it's supposed to be GIF because it's graphical. I, I, but I, I never knew the difference. 
Apparently, the creator of the format says that it is indeed GIF, which doesn't make any sense to me because, as you said, it's graphic image format, uh, not graphic image format. But here we are. Yeah, I think I also say GIF. So, of course, since we had to ask that question, now we're following along the lines of Kubernetes discussion. But my inner on-call engineer tends to enjoy a really good war story. And I imagine there are a lot with Kubernetes. And for the two of you who have such an interesting background in running Kubernetes in production, I want to hear a really good war story. So do either of you have one that would entertain me? <laughs> I'll let Nicole go second because she certainly has a more epic one than I do, I would think. And so we'll, we'll build to that. Um, I... I really don't have any specific examples that I can think of of anything that was truly disastrous. Um, I think the the thing that the one that really probably jumps out is um, various instances, and this happened more than once, so it's not it's not a very specific incident. But um, we would often have pods that reported metrics on customer clusters crash and disappear. And um, so, you know, our dashboards would go completely blank. And um, that's a really pretty scary place to be in when we have absolutely no observability into the health of the system when the things that are reporting the health go down. Um, and so it's, it's not terrifying in the sense of like we don't know that there's something actively wrong but it's scary in that if something does go wrong in that scenario we have no idea um and that that happened a number of times and um was a kind of a persistent thing that was tough to resolve so we had a cluster where we ran prometheus and we were shipping the prometheus metrics to another service within the cluster and then from there, they would get shipped on out of the cluster completely for long-term storage. We, I, I think I lost a little over a day to this one, where restarted everything I could think of within the cluster. Um, tried restarting KubeDNS, tried restarting the services, Prometheus, the service that received the logs from Prometheus. Nothing was getting the logs to start going. Um, so at one point, you know, digging in and I'm just like, I don't know, I give up. Let's just restart everything. And this was after an entire day. So I just started rebooting every node one by one. And somehow that fixed it. So no idea what the problem was. But after rebooting every single node one by one, everything was fine. Out of curiosity, how many nodes were there? So in this case, there was um, about 24 nodes. So that's like semi-manageable. <laughs> Welcome to troubleshooting in the container ecosystem. There's so much just turning it off and on again or kicking a pod. Like that's really just how you fix things in this world. I think that those are actually very fascinating war stories about logging and observability into Kubernetes clusters or even within the container ecosystem. We've talked a little bit about Kubernetes specifically, but there are a lot of projects that integrate with Kubernetes. Nicole, you mentioned Prometheus, you mentioned a lot of the kind of logging ecosystem available too. And it's massive. I, I can't keep track of it. But what's one tool or project that you're really excited about? So I, I have a hard time deciding between just one. So I'm going to say two. Um, 
Well, first one being Helm, it makes the ability to template out deployments into Kubernetes so much easier. Um, and the other one, for me at least, is Prometheus itself. Um, for me, I love Prometheus and the way it turns monitoring around. Whereas instead of everything relying on an agent that gets data and then ships it to the monitoring system with Prometheus, you have Prometheus scraping them directly from the application. And I just love that entire model of provide the metrics and allow them to be scraped because then Prometheus can use them or any other tools can use them and you can use them for health checks and everything. I think for me, yeah, Prometheus is super exciting and Helm Helm has really um, been a huge contributor to the ecosystem. I think for me, things that come to mind involve um, anything that makes Kubernetes a little bit less complex and a little um, more, I guess, accessible to people um, who are getting started in this space. Um, there's been a huge effort around um, making Kubernetes run locally very easy. Um, things like Minikube um, and Microcates. Um, and there's another one that I'm forgetting the name of that I've played around with a little bit too. Um, so th those are all exciting because they get people the opportunity to like play with Kubernetes really easily with, with no overhead. Um, and then I think kind of an extension of that, um, Rancher is is one that that really jumps out at me as um, when I was working at Starbucks and we were trying to build Kubernetes clusters, that was the first tool um, that made building on-prem clusters with VMware so unbelievably easy. Um, at the time, there you know installing Kubernetes was still tough, and and Rancher really was just you know. Uh, give Rancher a list of IPs and they just run a tiny little agent on each of these nodes and you can have clusters with a click. Um, so I think anything, for me, that excitement is anything that that lowers the barrier to entry and makes this easier for people. So what is your favorite local Kubernetes tool? So if it's between like Minikube, K3s, Kind, any of the other ones, what is your tool of choice? I've mostly been using Docker just because it's it's all packaged into the same little tool. Um, kind is the one that I couldn't remember the name of before. Um, but uh, yeah, I think Docker is what I've been using for the most part. Yeah, same thing here. I use Docker for Mac, and so it's got the built-in Kubernetes cluster, and I use that a lot, and it makes it really easy when I completely mess up my cluster, I can just push a button to completely reset it and it comes back within a couple minutes. Nice. I love the fact that there are so many tools that help you run locally. I think that it's really neat to have so many options and it's not just Kubernetes, but a lot of tools right now are focusing on the local desktop or laptop experience as well. Uh, I think there was this time that someone told me like, I have to optimize cost. I don't want to spin everything up in the cloud, but I can just do it all locally and test it first, and then I don't have to spend any money in any public cloud. So it's really neat to have that tooling available. So we chatted a little bit about the Kubernetes ecosystem. We talked a lot about Kubernetes. I'm surprised that both of you found time to learn HashiCorp tools on top of all of this, right? So how did you learn and apply some of the HashiCorp tools to what you were doing? 
So in my case, I actually started using the tools before I started using Docker. So I had used Terraform and Packer um, a significant amount in previous roles, even before Kubernetes was released. And we also, I built a container system that ran with console using console templates. And that was before Kubernetes hit 1.0. So we needed something to run containers before that happened. And so that kind of gave me a leg in with the tooling. And then as new products launched, it made it a lot easier to kind of follow along and stay up to date with updates. So in some sense, I've actually been using these uh, these products before HashiCorp even existed. Um, I was using Vagrant many years ago when I was doing WordPress development when I was still an intern in college. Um, and uh, yeah, I think um, it's really, um, I, I view the HashiCorp tools as, as very much a part of this ecosystem. I think my, my recent um, experience using these tools within the Kubernetes ecosystem before I started at HashiCorp was with Terraform. Um, so, you know, you think about the the types of services that you run on a Kubernetes cluster, and often these services still have external dependencies outside that cluster. And so the service that I'm thinking of, Nicole actually wrote some of the uh, initial Terraform code for this, but uh, the service, you know, we ran it on a Kubernetes cluster, but it still needed um, like a SQL database um, and access to a, an Azure Key Vault um, outside of the cluster. And so um, if we're deploying this service um, to every region on Azure, um, Terraform is something that made a lot of sense to use to build out these infrastructure dependencies that are outside the cluster. Um, so really, I, I, I do think it all belongs together. And that, that's kind of my intro to it. Cool. And I, there's been a recent initiative to put Vault on Kubernetes. Uh, and there's a, even a Helm chart available now for putting HashiCorp Vault on Kubernetes. Why do you think uh, the community has been asking so much for having secrets management being hosted on Kubernetes? So something an external like Vault, which is an external a secrets manager to be hosted on Kubernetes? So by default, when you create a secret inside of Kubernetes, it gets base64 encoded, and then it gets stuck inside of etcd. And you can do an etcd encryption so that that's encrypted on disk and everything. But that doesn't actually provide true encryption really like your key will be right there with the api server so if your nodes compromise they're going to get all of that um and so i think part of it is around access control of those secrets and other things along those lines because the security for those and the things stored in etcd are not as scoped as they could be and so I think that's part of the push for it, as well as a lot of the nice things you can do with Key Vault around rotation of secrets and credentials. Cool. Yeah, I definitely have heard about the Base64 encoded situation, which surprised me that there wasn't um, sort of additional encryption mechanisms within Kubernetes itself. But it sounds like it's giving you the ability to choose how you manage your secrets. I've definitely heard... Um that Vault uh, provides a bit more utility than the built-in Kubernetes secrets. And I think um, having the option to run that 
on the cluster um, could really get rid of a lot of the networking overhead that would come along with with running Vault outside the cluster. Um, and if you still want the utility that Vault provides, I think that makes a lot of sense. Out of curiosity, do people make it a pattern of running sort of like shared services within Kubernetes? So things like CI frameworks, for example, or secrets managers, or even like huge observability platforms. Do people make it a pattern to run it within a Kubernetes cluster? I've definitely seen it done many, many times. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think, I don't know. I, I, I talked to teams that you know put up this huge investment in Kubernetes and, and getting into the ecosystem. And then once you're at that point, um, uh, many people want to run as much as they can within the cluster just for simplicity's sake and to um, um, I guess if you're really able to templatize your deployment practices and and your your pipeline to Kubernetes, um, it it makes sense to reuse a lot of that and and run as much as you can in the same way. Yeah, to second that, I've I've noticed that as well. Um, on both ends, though, where companies are trying to shove everything they can into Kubernetes without building out all of that tooling. And that causes problems because they don't have the proper tooling in every application. They have to rebuild it. And so it takes months to actually get a deployment pipeline built going into Kubernetes. Um, but if you do properly build all of that so that it can be reused really easily, it makes management of your applications a lot easier. And then being able to share the infrastructure can help reduce the cost. Cool. So do you think there are concerns about multi-tenancy, like resources that contend with each other? Like, how do you prevent that? Depends on which uh, which company you work for. Um, I think I've seen so many different solutions to multi-tenancy um, for Kubernetes. One place I worked had one gigantic gigantic, unbelievably large bare metal cluster and used namespaces as the multi-tenancy model, um, whereas many other places will use actual clusters as the multi-tenancy model. Um, yeah, I've, I've seen various things tried and and I think there's probably uh, trade-offs and challenges for, for each way you look at it. Yeah. To second that, I've seen a little bit of every world when it comes to how you handle multi-tenancy in Kubernetes. But I will say, I feel like with every release and the new features that come out, multi-tenancy within a cluster gets a little bit better. Um, you've got network policies now so that you can actually lock things down from the network layer as to what they can egress to to try to block traffic as well as ingress. Um, and then you've got... So you can lock everything down at the namespace level. And then, but for me, if you need like strong barriers between the tenants, that's when I definitely would rely on multiple clusters. I think it's an interesting debate. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what container orchestrator you're running at the end of the day, they're all going to have some multi-tenancy models that we have to accommodate for somehow. It extends to tools really even far outside Kubernetes. It's it's one of the biggest challenges that I've I've come across in my career. Um, when I worked at Target, I was on the engineering tools team, and um, the biggest multi-tenancy challenge that we had was Jenkins. Um, and Artifactory was probably right up there too. But uh, 
it's um it's definitely a challenging thing to get right i think and i don't even know what getting it right is but uh it's it's tough to solve and how do you know if there is an issue right i know you've talked a lot about logging and you talked a little bit about metrics but how did you identify if these multi-tenancy concerns were affecting end users so for me i've always avoided multi-tenancy um, as much as I can. Uh, we had, so at Microsoft, we had some multi-tenancy stuff per cluster, but none of that was within the user's control. So we ran components for them, but we managed them, we controlled them. They had no access to those pieces. Um, when I was building the container ecosystem tooling at my previous job at WP Engine, though, we were actually going to be running PHP code that belonged to the customers in it. And so we had to build all sorts of tooling to make sure that those processes were properly gelled, couldn't get out of that namespace, and couldn't impact with or interact with anything within the cluster. I think an indicator for me was, you know, I was I was working on a team that maintained engineering tooling for a technology organization and the areas that we would start to have challenges multi-tenancy was if we were getting to the point where we were having to put up significant guardrails that slowed down and blocked the users of the tools because of multi-tenancy, that was a sign that we maybe needed to to figure something else out um where maybe uh, the multi-tenancy was was not going to work with this tool and we needed to move to more of a single-tenant type system. Interesting. It's really funny to me because I hear a lot of interesting myths or interesting approaches within the container space, right? And multi-tenancy being a very hot topic debate as well as how do you pronounce cube control, which I said it correctly this time. But another debate that I hear pretty often is can I put databases in containers? And I, I know there's a nuanced answer, but I love to hear from the both of you what your opinion is. Um, can you do it? Yeah. I never have because I just haven't wanted to deal with it. Um, that's the totally honest answer. Like, it's just more work than I've wanted to, to deal with. Um, like, I, I don't know. Call me lazy, but give me a managed database any day over over something like run by me in a container. Yeah, so I feel the same way. I'm not a DBA and I've never worked on a team that had a DBA. And so I prefer to offload that and let a cloud provider run it for me. Uh, and so that's worked out pretty well. And that's what I've used most of the time. However, I have run some databases like Redis inside of a Kubernetes cluster with great success. But Redis also supports multi-master and replication and things like that so that you can lose nodes and bring them back up. Um, I've also ran etcd using the etcd operator inside of Kubernetes, and that works pretty well and pretty successfully. Um, I've only lost data a handful of times doing that, and I was you know, we were running thousands of those. But when we lose the data, it was being backed up. So we were able to restore from a snapshot that was within five minutes of losing the data. 
Can you clarify, what is an operator? Yeah. Um, so this is all the rage these days in Kubernetes, and it's to use operators. And so the way they work, generally speaking, is you have a custom resource, and you're able to create whatever it is you're trying to actually create. So in the case of etcd, we had a etcd resource that was added to Kubernetes. And then we were able to define all the parameters on that object. And then there was another piece of software running, which was the etcd operator, which is basically a control loop that's watching those. And anytime they change, it ensures that the state of the running ones match. And so when you create a new one, it would ensure that the etcd servers actually get created. When you change it, it'll make sure they match. And then it'll also go so far as to like watch the pods that are running for that cluster. And if one crashes, perform the correct operations on the cluster to remove that node and then add the new one that it creates for you. It seems to like work a little bit like Terraform, right? In that it's declarative. So the idea is that if you say something should happen, thus the loop will reconcile and say it will happen within the cluster. Yep. Basically, it's a huge reconciliation loop. If I remember right, that was one of the original like design principles of Kubernetes was um, a huge focus on, on a declarative operating model. Yeah, and if you look at Kubernetes, it, it does follow that model. You've got like the controller manager that's constantly watching to make sure what you've declared is there. So it was extending that for third-party things. Now I'm going to address the elephant in the room, which is, have either of you used HashiCorp Nomad? Um, so I'm going to say no. When it was first released, like the very first release, I messed with it a little and I was like, I don't see how this is useful. And that was before I even found Kubernetes useful. And so no, I have not, but I'm excited to actually learn more about it now. I feel like such a terrible HashiCorp employee, but no, I've never used Nomad. I, it, <laughs> It's something like Nicole that I am super excited to dig into and learn more about. Like that's that's one of the things with the job that I'm the most excited about is, is getting to learn more about all these tools and, and Nomad definitely is included in that list. It's it's just not something that I've, I've had the exposure to yet, um, but am looking forward to digging into. I, I did learn a little bit about it um, helping you and Eric out with the Dance Dance Automation game that we had at HashiConf, which was super cool. Um, for those of you listening, super worth digging into the blog post on uh, on Dance Dance Automation to learn how Nomad was used for that. Yeah, I will say that there are purposes for both. Um, and Kelsey Hightower ran, I think, Nomad on Kubernetes, or was it Kubernetes on Nomad? It was HashiNetis. It was a pretty fun fun demo, but I will say after using Nomad and Kubernetes, uh, I don't miss Kubernetes YAML. <laughs> and I know that it's a hot topic, right? Why does everybody hate YAML? But first, just a personal preference. Uh, I enjoy declaring my jobs and stuff not in YAML. So uh, it was a nice shift for me, but I think both have their purpose. I'm a big fan of HCL, so that's I would agree with you there. Yeah, nobody likes trying to trace down where your extra space is in the file that's causing everything to break. 
I mean, you know, YAML has its place. I can understand. It's just, you know, it's just not the easiest thing for me to 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 debug and look at. So, uh, but definitely, I'm excited to hear what your impressions are of Nomad after you use it and what kind of use cases it serves. Um, it's a really interesting tool, and I think that they both serve very unique use cases. So have either of you tried the console service mesh? I have not. I only learned about them at HashiConf back in Seattle last month and or the month before. And so I'm really excited to actually play with it. I've been working in my head on what I want to try to build, which is two Kubernetes clusters at separate vendors and making them work together. So actually using all of the features it has to extend across public clouds. So I imagine that will be something I start to play with really soon. I haven't beyond some initial online tutorials, um, which has been fun to work through, but I haven't actually had the chance to test it out in any kind of production or even staging like real environment yet. So um, it's definitely on the list. It's something I'm looking forward to. Yeah, it's really cool because something that always bothered me was that I never had a global view of policy, network policies, even within a Kubernetes environment, right? Like my Calico policies, if I was using Calico for layer four, layer three stuff was not the same (laughs) as some of the traffic management I might have on some, you know, some of the sidecars I might be using. And so what's been really cool is to explore console to see if it provides a kind of a nicer view of the things that I plan on doing from a layer seven view and the things that I might be doing from a layer three or layer four view. So it's been, it's been really interesting to explore. I'm a networking person, so I have these weird pet peeves with networks. I don't know how you both feel about the network. I love networking. It's something (laughs) it's weird. Um, Early in my career, one of the things I was responsible for at Rackspace was building automation to automate the network for Rackspace. So routing IPs, creating VLANs, things like that. And so to be able to make that work across different vendors and different switches, I had to actually understand what I was doing. And I got really interested in it. And at one point, my home network got way too complicated. I realized I had like 30 VLANs and I'm like, okay, it's time to stop. Well, and it, it, this is an interesting thought now, right? Like, do you think that VLANs will still need to exist if we've got sort of this micro segmentation idea, right? That we can have a super flat network of everything dumped on one VLAN, but we just use metadata to separate different services that aren't supposed to talk to each other. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because when you think about like VLANs, you use them to block traffic going between things. And generally, if you're on the same VLAN, you have unlimited communication. But with our new networks within Kubernetes and other tools where you have a single network, but you've got policies that are restricting the traffic, I think VLANs start to make less and less sense as more and more networks move toward that, Um, at least for the container world. Now, for the physical world, I don't know that that kind of approach ever actually works. All right. Well, we have reached the top of the hour and I think that we should close out. But before we close out, I have our usual uh, interesting question for HashiCast. This is a slightly 
less serious question. But if you were a music playing device, meaning any technology that plays music but excludes music generating devices like instruments, what would you be? Music playing device that excludes instruments. Yes. I admit it's an interesting question. Last time we had airplane food and that one was just too much to contemplate. So this time we're taking it in a different direction. Does a wine glass count? <laughs> oh, I think so. I mean, it's technically not an instrument. It's not an instrument, but you can use it to play music and more importantly, drink wine. So why a wine glass? Why would you be a wine glass? Well, the amount of wine I consume probably makes part of my body wine at any given moment. <laughs> um, so there's that. But also, I really like wine glasses. Like, they look nice. And so I have way too many and all sorts of different kinds. So I, I'm kind of fascinated by them. I think what I would do, okay, um, this is similar in a way. I read a long time ago that the original sound for the Star Wars blasters was made by, okay, you know how in a really tall building, there's like an antenna on top with like some wire coming from the antenna that like holds it. Um, those original blaster sounds were made by plucking one of those wires on the top of a really tall building that was like connected to the antenna. So I think I would be that. I feel like I need to look this up. It's worth reading about. I, I should revisit it. Wait, so they climbed on top of the building with the microphone and plucked it. Yep. Well, I hope they used the elevator and the door and didn't climb, but yeah. Huh. Interesting. I guess those technically aren't instruments, so they do count. I mean, I, I was going to get specific with it, but yeah, that, that, that works. I would be a tube amp. So one of those like old fashioned amplifiers that passes the analog sound through the tubes. Yeah, I have one. It's unfortunately a hybrid, so it's a digital and an analog, but I still really enjoy it. Uh, and the reason why I would be a tube amp, because I have to say why I would personify the device, uh, is because it's a, I'm a mix of analog and digital, meaning I write things on pen and paper, but I also happen to happen to do a lot of stuff on the computer too. Yeah, I'm a little bit of both. That's a very thematic answer. I like it. I, know, I try to be thematic in these questions, you know? Nicole and Xander, I'm so excited to be working with both of you on this team and hearing more from you as hosts on HashiCasts. Thanks for joining us today. And a thanks to Katie for giving us a hug update. You've been listening to HashiCasts with your host, Rosemary Wong. Today's guests were Xander and Nicole from HashiCorp. Be sure to tune in next time.